Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. There is a book that many of us have heard of and not many of us have read. How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's one of those books that everybody sort of has a vague awareness of, just sort of a general, yeah, I've heard of that. But when you actually ask people, have you actually read it? I've not met many people who actually have. One of the reasons why everybody knows about it so much is it's a lot older than you think. The book is almost 100 years old, and it was written by a guy named Dale Carnegie. He wanted to be kind of on the lecture circuit, on the original self-help circuit, uh, and he decided that one of the things he would do would be to write a book. And the book wasn't selling all that well. He was not getting all that popular until he changed his name, uh, more specifically the spelling of his name, to match the Carnegie family uh, that has all the libraries, the Steel Barons family. His name was Carnegie, Carnegie, but it was spelled differently prior to that. So apparently, one of the ways to win friends and influence people is to change your name to a more influential person's name. And that really uh, worked out for him. And then one of the reasons why I bring this book up is the idea and the allure of having influence over others is in many ways evergreen. No matter what generation you're a part of, having power and influence is regarded by most as good. I mean, just look at the way that the word influencer has developed in the past 20 years. Think about going to yourself 20 years ago and explaining to them that, yes, there are people I know whose entire job is to be an influencer. You would not have an easy time explaining what that was to yourself. You would not have the categories for it, but there's all kinds. There's kidfluencers, momfluencers, fitfluencers, you name it. Any sort of subculture that we are able to find, any subculture that we divide ourselves into, you will find an influencer somewhere out there on the internet trying to make money off of that. The thing about influence is, influence is always bought with a price. Whether that's time, money, talent, something else, rarely does our influence in the lives of others come for free. Rarely does it just show up in our lives. And here's the thing. Having influence isn't bad. This isn't, you know, oh, if you know an influencer, tell them they're terrible. No, no, no. That's not where we're going here. Having influence can be profoundly good. But the question for all of us is, what are price are we willing to pay for that influence? Because make no mistake, whether we are young or old, we all want to have influence in the lives of others. Sometimes it's as simple as wanting to influence your kids to be great people. Sometimes it's, it's wanting your spouse to see you and see that you matter. Uh, sometimes it's that you want to be influential in the name of Jesus, maybe. But in all of those cases those influences that we have come at a price. And the question is, have we counted the cost? And the answer for many of us to that is probably higher than we like to admit. And in some ways, this ends up distorting how we see the good news of Jesus. But we're not alone in this struggle. 
Uh, The good news is that it's not just us, because this morning we're beginning our study of the book of Galatians. And the book of Galatians is all about uh, the people in these churches being influenced by another gospel. They're being influenced in the wrong direction. Some false teachers have come into the church, and as they have come into the church, they have led this church down a path that is away from Jesus. They're perverting the gospel for their own personal comfort. They're wielding influence to the detriment of the person of Jesus. And so as we read Galatians, uh, as I read the first 10 verses to you this morning, I'd love for you to listen and hear that. And so if you are able, I'd invite you to stand as I read Galatians 1, 1 through 10. It'll be on the screen behind me. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed." As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. City Church is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. Galatians is the first letter of Paul that we have. It's the first letter that Paul wrote in the New Testament. And as we jump in, there's a few things to notice. Maybe you've uh, been around, maybe you've been a student of the Bible for a long time. One of the things that is very missing in the book of Galatians is Paul's normal opening prayer of thanksgiving. When you read the book of Romans or Corinthians, even with all of the problems in Corinth, Paul always had this nice set of thankfulness, this nice prayer at the beginning. In Galatians, we don't see that. Paul gets right to it. Now, whether that's because Paul hadn't developed that style yet, or Paul was just so upset that he felt like he really needed to get in there, we don't know. But it's very sort of uncommon for Paul. He just jumps straight in. He shares his credentials. He said, listen, I'm an apostle, and that's got nothing to do with man. That's got nothing to do with any person who told me. And in fact, we're going to see that more next week. But then immediately after introducing himself, sharing his credentials, he gets straight to the point. He defines for them what the gospel is because at its core, the book of Galatians is all about the good news, the message of Jesus Christ, of who Jesus was. And the shorthand that Paul uses for that is the gospel. Because what has happened in the church at Galatia is Paul planted the churches in the south of what we now know as Turkey. He was on his first missionary journey, and he was in places like uh, Pisidia and, and Lystra, all these places in southern Turkey. He planted those churches, but just about as soon as he left, it seems that false teachers came in. 
False teachers came in and were distorting the message that he started out with. So Paul begins his letter by saying, look, let me be clear. Let me get to the point. Here is what the good news of Jesus is. That's what verses three through five are all about. The gospel of Jesus is a message of grace and peace. It's grace because Jesus has given up his life on behalf of his people. Our sins were significant enough that we needed to be rescued from them, delivered from them. It wasn't just something that we needed a little bit of help. It wasn't something where if we just could get a little bit of help, we could, we could maybe begin to please God. No, the language that he uses here of deliver or of rescue is the language that comes from the book of Exodus, which we have just previously studied. The people of Israel could not save themselves from Egypt. They needed a deliverer. We couldn't save ourselves from our sins. We need a deliverer. Our sin has fully put us apart from God, but the death of Jesus has completely reconciled those debts and reconciled that relationship. Jesus does this by giving his life as a sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, covering our debt with his blood. But, but this atonement, this covering up, this reconciliation isn't the only thing that Jesus did. Look at verse 4. Because Paul shows us the other dimension of the gospel. Jesus has delivered us from this present evil age. Now, many of us who are Christians who have grown up uh, sort of in the evangelical American church immediately cast our minds to the future when we read that. We think that that's something about, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I die, I get to go to heaven. That's kind of the point of all of this. And when we think that, that's not what Paul has in mind. He's not talking about some future where we get to go to heaven. Now, let me be clear. If you are trusting and have faith in Christ, when we die, we will join Jesus uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. But that's just not what Paul is getting at here. Paul is talking about something real and present and here and now. God has really rescued us from this present evil age. And here's what Paul means by that. What Paul is talking about is all of the sinful and evil ways that the world forms and shapes us. All of the ways that we are misformed by the world around us. Because the world, the culture around us is not neutral. It wasn't for Paul and it isn't for us. The Romans had a very specific idea in mind. They wanted to make everybody in Rome a good Roman citizen which meant that Rome cared that you worshiped the right things. Rome cared that you believed the right things. Rome cared, most of all, that you did the right things according to Rome. That's true then, and it's just as true now. But the problem was the Roman way of life was contrary to the God of the Bible. This happens today in us with the different ways that consumerism, individualism, and achievement are looking to shape our lives. They offer the promise of a better life here and now. But what Paul says is those things are malforming us. They are misshaping us in a thousand subtle ways. Look, you guys are all smart enough. Um, I was visited by um, some folks yesterday who were going door to door um, to, to proselytize for a different religion. And if somebody came up to your door and said, hey, um, do you have a minute for me to share how to worship yourself? I'd like to teach you how to worship yourself. 
would, would, would you be interested in that? Most of us would kind of, like, a lot of us would laugh out loud at those people, say, thank you, okay, bye, that's a little strange. And we would exit stage left and leave. And yet, as soon as we leave those people on our porch who offered us an opportunity to learn how to worship ourselves, we pick up our screen and are taught anyway. In a, in a subtle way, we stare at our screens and are given the same message and think nothing about it. We are being shaped, and the gospel is offering the Galatians deliverance from this present evil age. The gospel promises another way to live. The gospel promises us that we are able to receive grace and peace, be transformed by grace and peace, and then be a people who share that grace and peace with others. That's the same thing that is true for us. Jesus not not only forgives our sins so we get to go to heaven later, he delivers us from this present age of consumerism, individualism, and achievement so we can be people who receive, are transformed by, and give grace and peace to others. That's the gospel. Jesus has died to deliver us from our sins and rose again that we might live and be his body and the people who receive and then give grace and peace to everyone we meet. Now, most of us nod our heads. If we've been a Christian for a while, we go, yeah, that's it. That's the stuff. But for the Galatian church, that wasn't enough. Or at least they were buying into teaching that was telling them that this wasn't enough. That wasn't the full story. As we read the book of Galatians, what it seems happened is that after Paul left, uh, these teachers came in and said, look, yes, we're really glad that you uh, believe in Jesus. But if you want to be a good Christian— if you want to really actually like be a real Christian, you're going to have to go back and follow the law of Moses. So that means you're going to have to get circumcised. We're going to have to make some changes to your diet. And oh, by the way, there's these special holy days and you're going to have to make sure you fast on those days. You have to do Jesus plus the law of the Old Testament. And these people had come in to the churches at Galatia and told them that this was actually the real gospel, that Paul was a fake, that Paul didn't have it all right, and what they really needed was Jesus plus the law. And what Paul is astonished by is that they bought it, that they actually said, oh yeah, that sounds, that sounds good. I think I'll have some of that. Paul is, the w- word he uses here for astonish is, is the word that uh, all parents understand incredibly well. This is the word where you tell your child not to do something, And then within 90 seconds, that child is doing precisely the thing that you told them not to do. Really? Seriously? Come on. It is is a real thing that we really experience, and it's really what Paul was getting at. You've got to be kidding me. I am offering you the free grace of Jesus, the boundless peace of Jesus. And these people come along and tell you you can't eat bacon and you buy into it? Seriously, guys? And Paul says this is not a big deal because this is not you getting some doctrinal thing wrong. This is not you getting a little nuance of theology that you get off and we can have an argument about it. No, Paul says that by adding something to salvation by grace in Christ, you are actually completely walking away from Christ. You are turning it into a different 
message. And Paul says that the message that you're getting now is anything but good news. It's anything but the gospel. It's a distortion and mutation that's so serious. Paul says, this is an entirely different religion. This is not Christianity. Because anytime we add anything to the free grace of Jesus, anything we add to the peace of Christ that is given to us by faith, makes it an entirely different religion. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say that the teachers who are teaching this are accursed. This is, a, this is an Old Testament word. This is the word for when the people of Israel went into the land. God said that the sin of the Canaanites was so bad that the sin of the people who they were uh, taking the land over from is so awful that you can't even keep their clothes and you can't even keep their animals. All of these things are banned. They're accursed. Burn them all. And so the people of Israel sometimes did that. If you are familiar with the Bible and the story of Achan, the story, the problem with Achan was he kept some of the accursed items because somebody had a really nice wardrobe and he wanted to keep it and it would look good on him. And so I know that it's cursed, but you know, have you seen the fit? And so that, that's what Paul's drawing on. That's the language that he's saying here. If anyone, whether human or angel, teaches a gospel contrary to what Paul has laid out, they are absolutely accursed. Now, as Christians 2,000 years later, there's a couple things for us to notice here. First of all, it should be very clear that the gospel of Jesus Christ has nothing to be added to it. No law-keeping, no attendance records, no giving statements, no food or drink restrictions. Anything that we add to the free grace of Jesus puts our souls at peril. Any way that we try to gatekeep the Christian community apart from faith in Jesus as Messiah is accursed. That's often hard for us to get in our brains, though. We all would affirm that. We'd all say, yeah, free grace of Jesus. I am on board. But this present evil age has taught us that merit matters. Because we always got the grades that we deserved in school, because we always got the job that we worked hard for, we want our hard work to matter. But Jesus says it just doesn't. It just doesn't. My grace is free and full. Jesus has given himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. That's the good news, and it really is good. We have nothing else that we can bring or improve on what Jesus has already done for us. The day that we get to dance and eat with Jesus in heaven you will be no more righteous in the eyes of God than you are right now. You will be no more holy in the eyes of God on that day than you are on your worst day after trusting Jesus. That's the good news. And any revision of the gospel reverses the gospel. Because if we add anything to it, we make it a labor, we make it a work, we make it merit. And that's not the grace and peace of Jesus. There's one other thing as we read this uh, that I think we should be cautious about, which is labeling things gospel issues. Paul is very clear on what the gospel is and what it pertains to. And it's become very popular in Christian circles uh, to make our theological arguments more serious, more pointed by saying that these are gospel issues. 
But Paul says, if you get the gospel wrong, you are accursed. You are cut off from God's people. There are tons of theological differences in the body of Christ. There, are, there is no church that has everything right. We are all brothers and sisters as we affirm the truth and goodness of Jesus. And so there's all sorts of things that we argue about or, or that we have disagreements about around the body of Christ. Churches have different baptism practices. Churches have different ideas of, of gender and leadership. Churches have different ideas about the interplay of free will and God's sovereignty. And all of those things are good and interesting discussions to have. They're helpful things for us to know and to be able to work through. But at the end of the day, none of those are gospel issues. There's going to be people on both sides of those debates, a lot of people on both sides of all of those debates who's going to, who are going to worship Jesus together with us in the end. And when we call these things gospel issues, we're inadvertently calling down curses on those that we disagree with. But for Paul, the gospel is simple good news. Jesus has given himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. And so Paul finishes this passage by showing one of the beautiful results of the gospel in our lives. It frees us from the need to seek approval of other men and women. In fact, Paul uses the phrase people-pleasing, which is really interesting because we know that phrase well. That's not even like a Christian phrase. In all the world around us, we are fully aware and understand and have a category for people-pleasing, whether we think it's a good thing or a bad thing, a character flaw or a character uh, good thing. But for Paul, this was something different because people-pleasing in Greek religious literature does not show, it only shows up one time before this passage. Plato, in all of his writing about ethics, never deals with people-pleasing. Aristotle, in all of his ideas about the world, never deals with people-pleasing. Homer, in all of his sort of moral tales of Odysseus and the Iliad, never deals with people-pleasing. The only other time that the idea of people-pleasing shows up is in a book called The Psalms of Solomon. Now, most of us have never heard of the Psalms of Solomon. It sounds vaguely biblical, and you'd be right to think that that sounds vaguely biblical because it's a part of what we as the Protestants call the Apocrypha. Uh, those books written um, by different Jewish scholars in between the end of the Old Testament and beginning of the New Testament. And in these Psalms of Solomon that the Pharisees wrote, one of the Psalms, the fourth one in fact, is all about the evils of people-pleasing. Now, you've got to imagine Paul who used to be Saul of Tarsus, who was a Pharisee of the Pharisee, trained at the feet of Gamaliel, knows this Pharisee textbook, knows what people-pleasing was. And the problem was, is that the Pharisees didn't like it when people would go on business trips to Rome or to Alexandria, and they wouldn't keep kosher when they left Israel. Those are hypocrites. Those are the bad people. Those are the people that are changing their beliefs just because someone else is around them. And what Paul says here is that the gospel frees us from that whole argument. The gospel frees us from that whole discussion because our acceptance before God isn't based on any sort of outward rule keeping. It's solely based on our faith in what Jesus did on our behalf. Jesus has already taken care of our approval before God. It is done. You might say it is finished. 
The verdict has already been passed on us. The sentence of death for our sins has already been carried out, just not on us, on Jesus. So we don't have to fear the opinion of men. But Paul applies the second half of the gospel message as well. We have been delivered from this present evil age. We have been set apart to live a different sort of life. We are called to be servants of Christ, to live our lives shaped by the grace and peace that we receive. You see, you can't reject legalism and going back to the Old Testament law and just embrace hedonism and say that our lives don't matter. Our lives do matter. Serving Christ is a way for us to be a conduit of grace and peace to others, and that matters. Being true to who we really are, who God has made us into, and as people who have been delivered from this present evil age, that matters. So beloved, let's, let's hold fast to Jesus, who has loved us and given himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Let's receive the grace and peace of the triune God. And as we receive it, may we be transformed by it and give grace and peace to everyone who we meet this week and in our lives. Let's pray.